Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarowski Show. As I speak, it is Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. Lord knows when you're listening to this, and Lord knows when it's actually going to drop. I still haven't figured that out. Uh, headline, front page story, my beloved bright one in Chicago sometime. We're going to do a lot of political discussion in this conversation with my distinguished guests. But I just got to, I mean, I just have to say, Bobby Hull died. Bobby Hull, the great, the legendary, the golden jet of the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, 5,000 years ago, when I was a kid at Nichols Junior High, this guy was my hero, capital H, E-R-O. Uh, he played left wing for the Chicago, left wing, what else? Of course I would like a left winger uh, for the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, incredible uh, uh, slap shot, incredible skater, the golden jet. I love the guy. Uh, then the Blackhawks didn't sign him, and he w- he left Chicago. And I said I was through with the Blackhawks. Like, I, I really haven't been a hockey fan ever since. Uh, anyway, and then it turned out at the end of his life that uh, Bobby Hull was an alcoholic, and that he abused his wives, and uh, that he had allegedly made a few bigoted comments when he was drunk. And uh, suddenly, I was like a little sheepish, to put it mildly, about. Bobby Hall being my great hero. But what can I do, ladies and gentlemen? That was my hero. My distinguished guest who's with me right now. I'm sure he had some heroes with checkered lives from back in the day. Uh, I was going to say we can't pick our heroes, but we do pick our heroes. So what I really mean to say is, I don't know what I mean to say. I I used to love Bill Cosby comedy. Oh, that's a little embarrassing. I used to love Woody Allen movies. What else? Michael Jackson. Oh, my God. Anyway, Bobby Hull, the Golden Jet, uh, to put it, uh, the Sun-Times headline sort of sums it up. The Golden Jet was revered as the team's all-time leading goal scorer, but he had a checkered history off the ice. All right, enough on sports, enough reminiscing. I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. I am Matt Martin. I'm the alderman in the 47th Ward, the fight in 47th. Uh, and have the privilege of representing about 55,000 people, perhaps most notably, of which is, uh, is you, Ben. <laughs> yes, uh, Matt is my alderman, 
And so I'm going to refrain uh, from asking him, about, what are you going to do about my garbage? No. Uh, and uh, he is my alderman. Uh, and as I always point out, when he's, I think it's the third time you've been on the show, Matt. Uh, I did not vote for him in the first round. I kept my obligation to another candidate in the race, but it was a runoff. And I quickly voted for Matt Martin in the runoff. But I always point that out, Matt. You know, I don't want to be one of those guys who go, yeah, I always supported you. Uh, no, I voted for one of the other guys uh, in the race. All right, Matt, so much to talk about. Uh, you, you're kind of in a um, prime position uh, in many ways uh, to talk about the, these issues of the day. And I got a whole bunch of them, including the, uh, the Chicago comment deal, a tentative deal, I should say, which is uh, just written about in the paper. You're in a, I say you're in a privileged position of sorts because, yes, you are running for re-election, but you have no opponent. Um, so there's certain more latitude or freedom that you have to speak your mind. Uh, actually, I was thinking about this. A lot of my guests just speak their mind anyway, whether they're running for re-election or not. And I urge everybody to check out Byron Sixto Lopez interview that I dropped the other day because he really spoke his mind about a lot of things. Uh, so, uh, but you, you in particular, uh, you're free. You don't have to, it's not, uh, seen through the lens of a re-election campaign. So we got a lot to talk about ethics, uh, public financing and, uh, council reorganization, but let's start with Commonwealth Edison. Uh, all I know is what I read in the Sun-Times, where you're quoted critical of it. Uh, Ray Lowe, as well, uh, critical of it. Raymond Lopez, uh, alderman of the 15th Ward. And when I read it, uh, I had a flashback, Matt Martin, to uh, the last city council meeting of Mayor Rahm Emanuel, where they approved the Lincoln Yards deal, $1.3 billion TIF handout uh, for developers of Lincoln Yards. Last meeting, as the alderman from the last group were walking out the door and Mayor Rahm was walking out the door. And it's like, the city of Chicago seems determined never to learn a lesson. They're going to do it again. I think they said, according to the Sun-Times, a vote will be scheduled in March, uh, perhaps. So that would be before the mayoral runoff. Uh, knowing Chicago, they may hold it off until April uh, after the mayor's race. Um, your general thoughts about approving uh, the, comment, the ComEd tentative deal. Uh, with the city. Go ahead. I don't like the deal as it's currently been presented to city council. To be clear, it's just been presented by way of briefing. So want to read through the entire document. It looks like it's going to drop tomorrow um, during the city council's monthly meeting. But look, on the one hand, if we're talking about getting a hundred plus million dollars uh, from ComEd to start to execute our very big, important, ambitious climate action plan, that's great. That's $100 million that we don't currently have, but that doesn't mean that that's good enough. That doesn't mean that that's the best bargain the city could reasonably get. So uh, 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 the very uh, largest portion of the funds are supposed to go into this newly created nonprofit um, that would have several of its members selected by ComEd. That's a big red flag. I don't think that they have the right to select anybody to decide how we're going to spend a hundred plus million dollars, but also the people sitting on this nonprofit aren't even going to be city employees. They're not going to be elected officials. So if we know that we have a climate crisis, that we are starting to meet the moment by putting together and executing this big plan, for me, it's a no brainer that uh, city leaders, including elected city leaders should be the ones deciding how those funds are going to get spent in no small part, because we're accountable to people. You know, we've got an office and, and you come through, give us a call, send us an email. We're going to answer your questions, address your issues as best we can. That's how it should work. 
Um, so there's some other aspects of it as well that I'm really concerned about, but that's the big fundamental one. Um, I guess one other one I would flag too is that we're talking about a new agreement that would be between 15 and 20 years, which I think is much, much too long. We are poised to see two things. One, uh, very likely the ComEd bribery trial uh, will, will be happening next year. Um, and so we may learn new things that could have us in an even more fundamental way reconsider whether we want to partner with combat going forward. That's one. Second, we are in the midst of huge, huge change with electric vehicles and the fact that within the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to have to expand that charging network citywide. We're starting to get seriously about getting serious about decarbonizing buildings, especially new buildings, including electrifying them. So I don't see why it benefits us to lock us into an agreement that could last as many as 20 years when there's so much that's going to change starting next year and the next several years. This is a really important point that you began with, and I, I want listeners to understand it. So let's just go back. Um, so com, uh, it's again, it's a tentative deal. The detail, full details have not been released as I speak. By the time this drops, they may have been released. But at this moment, we're having this conversation. So full details have not been released. One key detail is that Commonwealth Edison will contribute, am I getting this correct, A 100 million dollars of the proceeds from uh, charging us to use electricity in the city of Chicago. They will have a monopoly on, on electricity in the city of Chicago. And in exchange for giving them that monopoly and untold millions of dollars in or fees and rate because of the rates they charge, they will turn over $100 million that will be controlled by a not-for-profit board whose members have not been selected yet, but some of whom will be selected by Commonwealth Edison. And what will they do with that $100 million? How will they distribute that $100 million? For what purpose? So the idea is that it will go towards having us meet the various requirements and goals in our climate action plan. So essentially ensuring that we are producing less carbon, that we're making our communities and our entire city more resilient to climate change, more frequent and severe storms, warmer weather, obviously severe cold patches as well. Um, so it's little things, it's big things, but uh, they would do so without any um, direct involvement or direction from city leaders, whether they're elected leaders or appointed leaders. Well, I'm very skeptical, just at the top. And I also noticed in the Sun-Times story that uh, some of the money, as I'm pointing this out, this is why I'm skeptical, um, will be used to train employees on the west side and south side for jobs uh, in uh, the energy industry. And I got to tell you, I've been around a long time, Matt. I always get skeptical when the city tries to dress up some proposal, which we haven't seen the details yet, by promising it'll be used to help people on the west and the south and the west and the south sides because generally it never helps anyone on the west and the south sides and they're just using people on the west and the south side to camouflage a deal that might not be in the best interest of the city of chicago i know you're probably thinking ben you're being jaded and cynical but i've been watching this a lot i think the parking meter deal the, the horrific parking meter deal. One of the th reasons they try they used to sell it to us was going to help people on the south and the west sides. So I'm always a little scared. When Mayor Rahm closed 50 schools on the south and west sides, he said he was doing it for the people on the south and the west sides. Matt, I got to admit, just right off the bat, that's like, mm, <laughs> not feeling this the way it's being pre presented. Do you think I'm being too jaded and cynical? I don't think so. 
think this is the exact sort of thing where we would want to have a lot of questions because we have um, with uh, our current and prior mayors, a long line of them, no shortage of really terrific press releases, wonderful press conference, announcing something, especially if it's a pilot, where we really see challenges or how does it look a year after the fact, two years, five years after the fact. So look, if we're going to invest 10 plus millions of dollars, 10 or more million dollars to uh, ensure that, uh, especially in our black and brown communities, um, workers are able to participate in a growing part of the economy, great. Let's make sure that that actually happens because we don't want this to be a situation where it looks good. And you could say even a year after the fact, it wasn't designed to succeed. And meantime, ComEd is continuing to rake in huge, huge profits. I mean, when they uh, got into hot water with the feds, they paid $200 million in a deferred prosecution agreement just to say, hey, we'll cooperate with you. Um, But that's just kind of the cost of doing business for them. So part of why I think we really need to kick the tires on this as a city council and the public more generally is in a vacuum, $100, $120 million, nothing to scoff at. What is it going to help us do? If we look at that climate action plan, working backwards from achieving those goals, how close is this going to get us there? Huge outstanding questions. And hopefully we're not going to have a rush job like you're talking about. We can't do this in under a month. Yeah, no. And clearly the mayor would love to do it within a a month or so because she would use it uh, to try to help her uh, win her election. Although if it's a crummy deal, I don't know how it's going to help her win uh, elections. So I don't even know if it'll work on that front. All right, let's move on because we don't have the details to really uh, take the deep dive in that and talk ethics in the city of Chicago, which is how I say is kind of a contradiction in terms. But we do have an ethics committee in the Chicago City Council. uh, And you are the vice chair of the ethics committee, but the chair uh, left office early. That would be... uh, Alderwoman Michelle Smith of the 43rd Ward. Uh, and so there's a vacancy. Uh, and um, you sort of proclaimed uh, the title or the responsibility of being the chair of the Ethics Committee, which is turning everything upside down in the Chicago City Council because generally the mayor selects who the chairs of committees are. Uh, and you are asserting uh, your right uh, as an alderman uh, to have a role in that. A very interesting flip-flop. I would say it's an indication that Chicago is experimenting more with independent thought in the city council and democratization in general across the board. Uh, why don't you give folks uh, an update on what's going down uh, with this entire issue? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so this is a, an absolutely critical thing uh, for city council, uh, which is making sure that we have chairs assigned to comp- important committees that are going to do the day-to-day work that the city needs. Because I think some good examples, I start with just what we hear a lot from residents about um, garbage collection, rodent abatement, tree trimming. Um, it's it's one thing for us as an office to be responsive to that, especially the squeaky wheels and get that stuff done in a one-off way. There's also simultaneously an opportunity with our city councils to take those complaints, zoom out and say, how big of a problem is this? How many people are having this problem but aren't going to 311, aren't calling our office, aren't walking in? They're our constituents too. We need to serve them. 
we can use these committees to modernize, to improve, to make more efficient and effective all of these core departments while we're simultaneously addressing these constituent service requests. Um, So that's the real opportunity that we have. And I think for very, very many decades, we've had this situation where, um, especially under the first mayor daily, he said, I'm going to take this power away from city council. City council used to write the budget the way that the general assembly writes the state's budget, the way that Congress writes the federal budget. But mayor daily took that away and said, instead, I'll let you all be your own little mini mayors in your own wards. Um, and there were some benefits to that, but also sir, there are some real disadvantages as we see right now. So I think that we can walk and shoot them at the same time as city council members. We can both be active and engaged in our communities, responsive to constituent service requests, while also making sure that we're doing our work as legislators, passing legislation, providing oversight. And that's exactly what I want to do and what I'm starting to do on the ethics committee. Because yes, it's the ethics committee, but it's ethics and government oversight. So working closely with the inspector general's office, when they put out these terrific reports, terrific audits, talking about in ways both big and small, how we approve the operations of all of our city departments. We need to be able to see that to have a hearing and then figure out what needs to change. If it's legislation, great. If it's just internal regulations, that's fine. And then see that those improvements are made. So it's not the same problem year after year after year that makes folks tired, disillusioned, disenchanted with what government can and should be doing for them at this most important local level. No. And, um, it's important. There's a direct correlation. We, uh, we'll get into this in a little bit, but Matt and I had a bit of a debate yesterday uh, over text. He was right on part of it. I was right on another part of it. We'll get into that. But one of the points that I discovered had to do with uh, voter turnout in the city of Chicago. And the turnout uh, for the last mayoral race, it was actually your runoff race as well, the municipal runoffs of 2019. The big race was uh, Lori Lightfoot versus Tony Preckwinkle. 35 or 34%. It was abysmal, absolutely abysmal. And uh, Matt, I do believe uh, the apathy and alienation is fueled by the steady uh, stream of stories about corruption. There was a story in today's paper about Acevedo uh, being uh, guilty in a jury trial, Southwest Side Aldermanic, uh, excuse me, Southwest Side political family, Michael Madigan. We already in the Commonwealth Edison scandal. prominent politicians who are running property tax appeal business on the side, both Cullerton and Madigan ran them. Uh, yes, I, we, we make fun of how unethical Chicago is, uh, but I do, I do believe there's a price we pay uh, for the corruption in terms of just public perception. Uh, 33%, that's pathetic. Um, so why don't you explain how it was that uh, back in 2019, when you uh, entered office as a rookie, that council chairs were assigned. People don't know about how government really works in Chicago. So what was the process? Who was making the phone calls? Who ultimately determined uh, who got to be, like that Michelle Smith, for instance, got to be the chair of the ethics uh, committee and you were the vice chair? Go ahead. So my perspective, um, of course, is one of 15. As a junior person, you didn't have as many people banging down my door as someone who'd been on council for a longer period of time. So just making that clear, um, it was folks from the mayor's team and some of our more senior members of city council reaching out to introduce themselves when necessary, but also saying, look, what are some committee assignments that you would be interested in serving on? And so I mentioned a few, including housing, public safety, environmental protection, among those. Um, other committees like 
finance and budget, very, very hard for a freshman to get onto, very rare for that to happen. Um, but really the idea was, hey, if we get you onto a committee or two that you're really excited about, we'll expect that you'll support our slate. And the slate being not just committee assignments generally, but committee chairs included. Look, I think to be clear, there are some committee chairs who are doing a really good job um, and people that I respect that are very approachable. Um, But I think historically, especially the whole idea was you as a committee chair, um, the, the, the mayor either selects you or supports you in that position. You in turn support them in their big legislative initiatives. If you have any problems with them, big or small, keep it quiet. Uh, don't don't bring it um, public. And in exchange, you get committee staff. And as the inspector general's office noted, historically, um, too often that committee staff, uh, they're working just as, as surrogate ward office employees instead of staff doing the work of the committee. And I think that there are two big problems behind that. One is every single aldermanic office should have the same number of employees. It shouldn't matter if you're in the mayor's good graces or you're not, whether you're a a long tenured alder person or a new one. If you're in Beverly, if you're in Brighton Park, you should uh, expect the same quality of constituent services as if you're in Roseland or Rogers Park. Um, So that's a big problem. Um, And then second, it means that when you have these bigger issues come up, like say the ComEd franchise agreement, We don't have a lot of staff right now that can help us wade into the details. We have to do a lot of that work ourselves. We might ask our ward office staff to pitch in a little bit, but that's a big ask. Uh, We increasingly are working with outside groups who have developed this expertise. But still, if we have people on the city's payroll who are assigned to committees to do that work, they should be doing that work. And it should also be the case that ward offices shouldn't suffer. It shouldn't be this question of, Does my ward office get the resources that my constituents badly need or do I maintain some degree of independence from the mayor, whoever that is? Yeah. And, uh, but that's the reality. That's what, uh, Chicago is in there. So you got to be on, uh, the ethics committee, uh, and, uh, and then Michelle Smith left, uh, midterm about six months out. What was the response of the mayor's office, the mayor, when you claim the right to be the chair or to act as the chair? Uh, how, did you get a call from the mayor's office? Did they push back? Did they try to force you uh, not to take that position? What happened? I gave them a heads up. Um, and like really on, uh, shortly after Michelle stepped down, I talked with my other colleagues on the ethics committee to see if anyone else was interested in doing the work. Um, I talked to some other senior members of city council, uh, most of whom are chairs, just to get a better sense of you know, what are some non-obvious ways in which uh, uh, you you would have to do the work in an effective way. Talked with the mayor's office as well, doing my due diligence, just getting the word out there, but also wanting to see, hey, if I'm happy to step aside if if another person really wants to do this. And I think they have a compelling vision uh, for the committee. Um, that didn't happen. So after a point, I just said, look, we have had... Um, We haven't had any meetings in the committee for many months. Uh, We don't have uh, a a chair doing the work. Um, The staffers who, at least at that time, were employed by the ethics committee weren't doing the work of the committee. I think that's a problem. I think there's enough work to be done, as evidenced by the creation of this committee in 2019, 
with the support of, of Mayor Lightfoot, with the support of uh, pretty much the entire city council, let's get to work. Um, so, you know, there was some back and forth about it. And today, uh, just the other week, I decided it's just time to do this work. Even though I'm the vice chair, our rules of order and procedure say that if there's a vacancy at the chair position, the acting chair, the vice chair is the acting chair. So I said, hey, I'm just going to do the work. I'm going to call a hearing. Let's start rolling up our sleeves, doing the work that people expect. Um, uh, I, I did at that time get cooperation from the mayor's office, from other colleagues. And that's what I hope and expect to get for the remainder of the term. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it was, really would have been looked bad if the mayor uh, had resisted and made a big deal. Don't have a meeting. We have staff, but don't have do any work uh, because I didn't appoint you. It would have looked pretty bad. Uh, it would look, how, what's the word, unethical? I don't know. Uh, but uh, the larger issue going forward is what I call the Matt Martin question. And I told you this. I asked it of all Aldermanic candidates at a forum in the 30th Ward. Uh, would you stand with the Matt Martin in reorganizing the council according to what the aldermen want? Or would you stand by the tradition of having the mayor appointed? Uh, every candidate said they'd stand by Matt Martin. Now, Matt, as I told you when we had the conversation earlier, I'm used to candidates saying one thing as candidates and doing something else when they're elected officials. But I, I have a feeling that at least, how do I put this, the, the politically correct position to take in Chicago is aldermanic independence. The days where it's politically acceptable, and I've had many aldermen tell me this down through the years, Matt. You got to play the game, Ben, and you got to you got to you got to trade some of that council independence, get the goodies. Uh, I think those days may have passed. Uh, it may, they may continue to occur those kinds of wheelings and dealings, but I don't think people will uh, openly talk about it. Do you believe we're heading toward a more uh, democratic, independent council uh, in the next uh, term? I think we certainly have the opportunity to have that happen. Um, there are at least 14 open seats right now where you're going to get a new alder person. That doesn't mean that all 14 of them will answer the Matt Martin question uh, the, the, the way that you and I might like. And that's okay. It doesn't, you don't need to have a situation where everyone's in 100% agreement, but let's be open and upfront about where those disagreements are. Because you might have some people who say, look, at the end of the day, the mayor's running the city, the mayor should call the shot in every single way. Um, that's been the position of a lot of folks over the last several decades. I get that. I, I happen to see things differently. I don't think that it's in the city's best interest, a city of 2.7 million people to have one person and the individuals who directly report to them to create legislation, to usher it through city council, to effectuate that legislation and then fix issues as they invariably arise. That's just too much for any one person to deal with, no matter how much you agree or disagree with them. So I do think that we're heading into this territory where there's an opportunity to have frank discussions with the mayor's office, with members of city council, with the public about how we can do things differently, how we can do things better. I don't think I'm going to get uh, a majority of council and the mayor's office to agree with me on every single point, that's okay, but I want to elevate the conversation. So hopefully, uh, even just a few months from now, when we get going in the new term, in the middle of May, we can look back and say, okay, we've, we've made some real progress here in ways that we're proud about. 
Matt, the last time the council uh, reorganized itself without the mayor uh, in, in opposition to the mayor was uh, back in 1983, a very controversial moment, to put it mildly, in, in Chicago's history. It was council wars, and it was mostly white aldermen uh, rebelling against Harold Washington, the greatest mayor the city ever had. And um, so it's kind of given a bad name to council independence in a way because they used it uh, toward, for like racist purposes. Uh, and they played off racial, racist, uh, racial fears that way people had about black people. So <laughs> did not give council independence a good name. Nonetheless, it was council independence. And, uh, the leader of that, the guy who put it together, uh, was Eddie Verdoliak, uh, who long passed from the scene here in Chicago, who's still alive. What I'm leading up to uh, is this, do you see any alderman in the city council, in your opinion, or alderwoman who has sort of the charisma uh, and the authority uh, to do what Verdoliak did and organize the aldermen because it's not going to happen. Council will not organize itself. So when we, you know, in the um, uh, in Washington, there's a speaker. We watch Kevin McCarthy put his coalition together. We've we've all gotten a little education about that. In Springfield, there's a speaker and. And a Senate president, and we've watched uh, Chris Welch, I think, do a masterful job of playing the political game in Springfield, uh, Michael Joseph Madigan for years. Is there anybody in the city council? We don't have a person who has that title like they do in uh, Washington or uh, Springfield. So do you see anybody who has the potential to put a council uh, together, to organize a council with the committee chairs and vice chairs uh, without taking uh, orders and commands from the mayor? I don't think it's a job right now that any one person can have. So uh, I think that it's still too unwieldy of an entity. You got 50 people who um, see, see things their own way and are going to be independent in their own ways, whether it's big or small. Um, I think that's too much for one person to do right away. I don't think that that should happen. I think that maybe 10 or 15 years from now, Maybe it will be appropriate to have a speaker and we can talk about tenure and how they work. Right now, I think that it's um, especially returning people from city council who have either exercised leadership or interested in exercising leadership in a new way who should have conversations in a really thoughtful and direct way and in a different way about how we can do things better. I don't think that we're going to... Um, uh, fix things overnight. And I think there are a lot of different ways we can go. Maybe someone says at the end of the day, it's not in the city council's best interest or the city's best interest to have a speaker, but at least to have some more formal leadership structure so that just like it's helpful to onboard new older people, because man, it is drinking from a fire hose those first few days, weeks, and months. It's also important to think through what's a more equitable process of deciding how you uh, what committees you're you're going to be serving on, which ones you're going to be chairing um, uh, in, in ways that are going to help us do the work. Because right now I sit on seven or eight committees. That's too many. That's really too many. I think sitting on fewer and really being able to dig in would be good. And to have those conversations with others to figure out how to make that happen. I think those are things that we can agree on. So we should start by figuring out what those things are, work towards that. And it, if and when people have ideas about, hey, I this other city has a speaker model, you know, Los Angeles or, or New York city, let's emulate this. Let's tinker it in these ways. Great. I'm not sure that we're going to figure that out between now and May, but we still have, uh, an opportunity to lay the, the groundwork for getting there soon. 
All right. I have uh, two more questions for you, then I'm going to let you go. The first one has to do uh, with public financing. We could do a whole show on this, uh, and it's kind of awkward that we're just, uh, I'm just shoving it into a last question. So we'll probably bring you back to do a a full question about this. But you made headlines. It was a couple, was it a week ago? I've lost track of time, Matt, uh, with a proposal to publicly finance uh, city uh, aldermanic races. I think it was aldermanic races. Uh, and uh, that caught me off guard. I didn't see that one coming. Of course, you don't run your proposals by me, so uh, uh, why would I know it was coming? To explain to folks how it would work, publicly financing aldermanic races, and why you think uh, it's an idea we should be exploring. So what I'm proposing is a small dollar donor matching program, with the idea being, what are we looking to fix? What are the concerns that we have? People who are dropping thousand dollar checks, $5,000 checks that are drowning out the voices and the interests of say your grandma, your friend, your spouse, you can only afford a $50 uh, contribution, a hundred dollar contribution, but that's so meaningful for them. They are just as invested in seeing you succeed, if not more so. And looking at how other cities do a better job of ensuring that uh, there aren't barriers to entry for people who have been serving their communities already, have great ideas about how to strengthen their neighborhoods, their broader city. Um, but maybe they they can't raise $100,000 right away. They can't raise by themselves $200,000 over the course of a campaign. But we want them to be active in participating in the civic discourse. So what I proposed after talking with people all across the country is, look, first you have to have some skin in the game. I'm not saying that we match you uh, uh, starting with the first dollar. You've got to get some skin in the game. So at least 100 donors, most of whom should be from within your ward, um, uh, raise at least uh, $17,000. And then once you meet that critical threshold, we'll do a small dollar match. We're proposing a six to one. New York's match is eight to one, but it could be, it could be a different, um, it could be a different type of match. I have it capping out at $175. I figure after that, the match is more than generous and that you should focus your time on talking with more and more people and soliciting their support, earning their votes, um, then getting big checks. But also there's a cap. It says, Hey, uh, you can't solicit more than $500 because you can't on the one hand be collecting a $5,000 check and then on the other hand at the same time uh, participating in the small dollar match program. So really elevating the voices of working class people who should have just as much an opportunity to serve our communities in elected office as anyone else. Yeah. Do you think that this is going to be a, a just a, a knee-jerk opposition to it from aldermen who are thinking, hey, I have certain advantages as an incumbent at fundraising, just because I am the incumbent, why would I use public dollars to help somebody run against me? So there might be some concerns there, but look, if you look at other places across the country, incumbents uh, will opt in. And this is not this is not required. This is optional. So if someone says this is not a good uh, a program for me for whatever reason, um, okay, then you don't have to participate. But at the end of the day, you're talking earlier about the, the costs of corruption, and we see that informally in terms of lower voter turnout at the municipal level relative to the federal level. But also Dick Simpson, a former alderman, longtime professor at UIC, he and some colleagues estimated that the cost of corruption in Chicago and Illinois is $500 million. So I just think that we really have to sit down and think about who do we want to have run? How should those campaigns be operated? And at the end of the day, to be in elected office is not a right, it's a privilege. You're there to serve people, it should be a job 
for your entire professional lifetime. And you should have systems that reflect that. And I think a really important one is to have the small dollar matching fund. All right. Um, Final question has to do with politics. Uh, Take off your automatic hat and put on your political junkie hat. And we have nine uh, candidates running for mayor. Most assuredly, there will be a runoff. Uh, you are the alderman of the 47th Ward. And, and, and as I learned yesterday when we had our mini uh, debate, uh, the, the 47th Ward has one of the highest turnout rates in the city of Chicago. So congratulations, 47th Warders, uh, for participating in government. You got a little work to do, 47th Ward. Don't get all cocky and everything, because I think you're at best at a municipal race, 50%. That's still kind of low in my home. <laughs> still kind of pathetic, 47th Ward, but it's better than most of the other wards in the city. Uh, so what's your sense of how people in a pivotal 47th Ward, which is on the north side, uh, sort of uh, center-left ward, I would say, uh, progressive ward, uh, are, are are heading in this dura- in this upcoming election. Who are there any particular candidates that I think will that you think will uh, do particularly well in the forty seventh ward, or is it just wide open? So I do think that there's still a tremendous number of undecided voters and people who are just starting to tune in to the municipal race um, at that level. I think what I am hearing anecdotally largely mirrors what we're seeing citywide in some polling, which is um, increasingly folks asking about Brandon Johnson. Um, Nars is a, is, is a very progressive ward, and a lot of the policies that he's talking about are things that um, I and, and many of other of our local elected officials have championed. So I'm hearing his name come up a lot more often. Also hearing Paul Dallas's name come up more often, which uh, I'm really concerned with based on his stance on reproductive rights, on workers' rights, um, and especially his tenure leading um, Chicago public schools. A, a, a lot of red flags here, but it's coming up a lot. Um, I think due in part to how he's talking about public safety and playing into people's fears. Um, I'm not hearing as much about Mayor Lightfoot. Um, heard some early on about Congressman Garcia, but a little bit less. So I do think that um, you're seeing, in short, uh, Commissioner Johnson and Paul Dallas um, surging a little bit in our community, just like they appear to be doing across the city. Wow. Brandon Johnson, who is uh, on the left in Chicago, uh, maybe the most left of all the candidates uh, in the race, uh, versus Paul Vallis, who is essentially the MAGA candidate in the race. He's got the support of the Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, and I know Paul, uh, I've known him for a long time, is definitely moving away from the MAGA label. But, you know, when that <laughs> he's got the pictures with Jeannie Ives, et cetera, and so forth. So it's going to be challenging for him to move away from that label. Um, are you encouraged by that? The fact that it will be a definite, if, if, it, if it is Brandon Johnson versus... Uh, Paul Vallis, we don't know, okay, this is sh- sheer speculation, but the, what a choice for this, you know what I'm saying? It's like, mm, not a lot of middle ground. I know Paul would try to present himself as the middle ground man. <laughs> I've known him for a long time, uh, Matt Martin, but that will be a stark choice for Chicago, probably as stark a choice as we've ever had uh, since 1983 with Harold Washington. Yeah, yeah. I uh, look at the end of the day, I want people to focus 
on the race. You know, it's, as much as um, I'm encouraged that people are are asking around, hey, who are you supporting? Who's who, who are my neighbors supporting? Um, even to show up to vote, because like you said, even though our voter turnout's pretty good, it's only pretty good in comparison to other places. We should be having 89% turnout the way that we did, um, not just at the federal level, but like that 1983 election, I think we might have been pushing 90% citywide. And so for as much as we hear folks complaining and frustrating and hoping uh, for a better city in ways both big and small, we need them to show up. And I think that if they show up, having educated themselves about the, the policy platforms um, and how just generally candidates are putting themselves out as a leader for the city for the next four years, um, that, that, that could be really exciting. But we need them to show up. It can't be a complacency election. It can't be, oh, I'm not so excited. I'm just going to stay home. The stakes are much, much too high, whether you're talking about public safety, making sure our homes are affordable, addressing the climate crisis, all the way to uh, improving the CTA, our bike uh uh, infrastructure and then just core constituent services, which not glamorous, but man, we, we need to make sure that all of our city departments are continuing to improve and people should be just as invested in the February 28th election as they are in November and presidential years. It is remarkable. And, uh, so yesterday, uh, Matt and I were having a conversation and, uh, I forget what triggered it, but it's, I, as a result of our conversation, I spent about 15 minutes doing a deep dive on voter turnouts. Uh, I was trying to prove that I was right and he was wrong. And in the end, I think he was right and I was wrong. It doesn't matter. The point is, um, it, 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 to your point, in 2020, when Trump ran against Biden, the turnout in the city was like over 70%. It was like 73%. I'm doing this off memory. Uh, the last mayoral election, as I said, was like 34%. I'm like, Wow. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like nobody's, it's like people go into hibernation. I know the elections in February, it's cold, but there is really a lot of apathy to put it mildly, Matt, when it comes to Chicago politics. And when there's apathy, that's when stuff goes down, like to tie it all up, a Commonwealth Edison agreement that's not in everyone's best interest and people end up paying more rates and we have a sloppy agreement that doesn't really encourage people to what? To get, uh, you know, solar paneling or what have you for the roofs or what, you know, and go, oh, this is terrible. Well, you know, <laughs> you guys were freaking asleep at the wheel. I, I guess I'm what I'm asking, Matt, is do you ever see a moment, do you have any moment where you think that there will be as much interest in a local election as there is in a national election, a presidential election? I, I do have hope in, in that. And part of it, my job is to have that hope. If I, if I didn't have hope around uh, a more robust um, and, and progressive uh, engagement at the municipal level, I, I, I shouldn't have the job that I have right now. That, that should really be a prerequisite for someone who's representing the 47th Ward on city council. But easier said than done. I think that you really have to explain to folks why the stakes are high, why uh, the, there's a real contrast among the various choices, um, but also to have them feel inspired. You know, sometimes I do. I, it's interesting to compare the soaring rhetoric that you hear from candidates at the state level, at the federal level, um, and sometimes they don't have all of their plans fully baked, but still 
part of the process of our government is imagining just how much better things can be. And then working backwards from that is in a, in a principle and aggressive way. Um, I think you saw that in someone like Harold Washington and the coalition that he put together. That's a big reason why you saw upwards of 90% of Chicagoans turning out in 1983, even when there were a lot of election day shenanigans that are happening. So we can't just simply recreate that. We need to find a way to have new moments like that. But I think that's really instructive about how you bring people together around shared goals, shared values, which we have in spades here in Chicago. Very good. All right, Matt, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to me. And I know you got to get to your next appointment. So thanks a lot. All right. Appreciate you, Ben. All right. That's Matt Martin. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 